0: Almost everything around us contains pores, P-O-R-E-S. The floor under our feet, the seats we're sitting on, our skin, and our brain are porous. Now, I don't say this to uh, cause any concern. Uh, The seats, as far as I know, are fairly stable, as is the floor. Pores are a necessary part of our health and well-being. For example, the blood in our skin opens and closes the pores in our skin, enabling us to cope cope with temperature changes. Pores are a necessary part of a material world around us. So, a little over a week ago, walking through the Desert Botanical Gardens in Phoenix, I learned that the saguaro, if that's the way you pronounce it, the saguaro cactus have little pores in their skin that collect carbon dioxide. Now, while most plants open their pores during the day, cacti and other nocturnal plants open their pores at night. There are also pores on the earth's surface, that enable the movement of vital water that sustains life. Interestingly, scientists are exploring ways to store climate gases responsibly in the Earth's surface. In particular, high-level research has been carried out using mathematics and natural sciences to solve ways to store carbon gases in porous rocks beneath the sea. Porosity is an important aspect of the world around us and to our own life and well-being. Now, let me take this whole notion of porosity to a totally different level. The porosity of the universe. I'm speaking of a non-material, supernatural dimension of existence beyond the space-time material world that is capable of movement in the material universe. So with those thoughts in mind, come with me back to that reading from Luke chapter 24. In this passage, beginning at verse 13, Dr. Luke records that two of Jesus' followers left Jerusalem for the village of Emmaus on the Sunday after Jesus' crucifixion. And as they trudged along the dusty road, their lives were totally changed. The events of the weekend had been momentous. On the Thursday night, their best friend had been betrayed to the the religious elite, and even though Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, had judged this man innocent, he had still signed the death warrant for Jesus' crucifixion. Yet the man whom they had seen do the most extraordinary things hadn't lifted a finger to prevent his own horrific end. The two on the road felt it keenly. Preoccupied with their grief and bewilderment, their hearts were heavy and their eyes were glued to the ground, so much so that when Jesus himself joined them, they simply didn't recognize him. What are you discussing together as you walk along? We read in verse 17. They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked to him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death. And they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. These men were bewildered; they were confused. And that's the first scene that opens up for us. Jesus was dead. The man who had still sees, healed people who were hurting. This man who had brought renewed hope to thousands, this man who dared to speak out against the hypocrisy of the religious elite, was dead. They'd seen him taken from the cross. They knew where he'd been buried. But then on the Sunday morning, a rumor had started that some of the women had seen him alive. And that was a bit far-fetched, they thought. Two of them had gone to the tomb and found it empty, but they could only guess what might have happened. Jesus had left them so many riddles. Who really was he? Had he spun them a huge lie? Maybe he wasn't the man from heaven that they'd come to believe. Maybe the universe isn't porous after all. But look at what the stranger said in verse 25. Though foolish men and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Now, Jesus doesn't seem to be very sensitive to their feelings at all. It's worth noting that sometimes the best counseling is not so much the listening ear or the neutral word of comfort, but a sharp word of rebuke. And that's what's happening here. But Jesus' words aren't all that hard. How foolish, how dull-witted you are, he is saying. They're words of rebuke, sure. But they're also words of endearment. Think through the evidence, he's saying. Think through all. He and the prophets had said, Didn't you hear that the Messiah hadn't come this time to be pre- treated as a prince or a king? Didn't you learn that Jesus' commitment to serve all men and women would mean betrayal, injustice and death? Didn't he also go on and speak about resurrection? God wouldn't let him rot in the grave. His tomb would be empty, not because his body had been removed or stolen, not because he'd recovered consciousness, but because God would raise him from the dead. The universe is porous. The Creator God can enter it and involve himself in it, as and whenever he chooses. You're not thinking, Jesus was saying to these two, remember. Aren't there moments where like this? When we're faced with some of the harsh realities of life, betrayal, injustice, job loss, a sudden death, we become preoccupied. We can't see that any good will come from those dark hours. It's very easy in those dark moments of life to forget that Jesus promises that he will be with us, come what may. It's very easy to forget God's promises that he'll bring good for those he loves, even in the blackest moments of life. It's so easy to forget that God is about resurrection, new life, new hope, and yet what do we often do when we hit rock bottom? We can lash out at God and harden our hearts, or we might try to reach God by treading the path of mysticism and meditation. And even if we've professed to faith for many years, we can wonder if our relationship with God is right. We might wonder whether there is anything else we should be doing. Should I fast and pray? Should I do more good works? Perhaps I should go to, to communion more often? Perhaps that's why God is not answering my prayers, we might feel. But what did Jesus do? With the two who were so confused, so bewildered on the road to Emmaus that day, he went on to educate them. Bewilderment, a sharp rebuke from Jesus, education. Beginning with Moses, we see it in verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. For the two on the road, Jesus' death seemed a tragic finale to a brilliant career. They were right in thinking that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ. But they were wrong in understanding what that meant. They hadn't listened to his teaching. They hadn't understood the scriptures, the law, the prophets, and writing of the Old Testament, as we would call it. They expected the Messiah to be a political figure, that he would be greater than the great King David and lead Israel to world victory. Rome would be crushed. Like many of us, they hadn't taken in the plain meaning of the scriptures. Jesus needed to take them through, should we say, an introduction to the Bible course, to help them understand from the whole movement of of God's revelation that we find throughout scripture, beginning with Genesis and moving right through, so that they would begin to understand why he had to suffer and die. So he would have talked to them about Moses, the exodus from Egypt, and God's commitment, I will be your God and you will be my people. He would have spoken about the warnings of Deuteronomy. If Israel broke the law, it would lose God's friendship and blessing. He would have spoken about Isaiah's words concerning God's servant, who would bear our sins and griefs. when he died. He would have spoken about Ezekiel, who spoke of resurrection. It would have been a fantastic Bible study, putting together the pieces of God's grand design, God's cosmic plan, as it were, showing those two disciples that God was willing to serve Men and women, even though they'd broken their relationship with him, God is a God who's committed to serve our best, very best interests, no matter the cost. That's how much he loves us. Our creator God is willing to serve us, you and me, Jesus' death was not a matter of his being crushed by the might of Rome or by ruthless religious leaders in Jerusalem. It was God's predetermined rescue plan. It had to happen this way. Back in the book of Leviticus, chapter 17 and verse 11, we read, Without the shedding of blood there can be no forgiveness of sin. Thomas Cramner, pardon a little bit of Anglican talk at this point. Thomas Cramner, Archbishop of Canterbury, in the reigns of Henry VIII and Edward VI of England, explained Jesus' death in the Lord's Supper as the one perfect and sufficient sacrifice Oblation and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. Luke 24, what we might call Luke's resurrection chapter, draws our attention to the significance of the death of Jesus. Indeed, in this resurrection chapter, we've got reference back in three great scenes in the chapter concerning the reality, the significance of Jesus' death. In biblical terms, the resurrection has no meaning apart from the crucifixion. But the two on the road still didn't see who was really talking to them. Just look at verse 28. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as though he was going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened. So you see the scene. They'd arrived home, the stranger's still with them. It's late in the day, stay on with us. You never know what could happen out on the dark night on these roads around here. But when they sat down for dinner, notice it was not Cleopas who said grace, it was the stranger. And as Jesus gave thanks, or gave thanks and broke the bread, Either his words, his tone of voice, or the movement of his hands stirred a chord in their memory, perhaps even of his feeding of the 5,000. Previously, their eyes had been closed. Now they were truly awake. And just as they recognized that their guest was Jesus, alive and well, risen from the dead, he vanished. Just another little wrinkle in the point I'm making today of the porosity of the universe. The supernatural can move in and out at will. In their awakened state, the two on the road, now at home, suddenly reflected, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures. The living Word of God had been speaking with them, reaching their minds and their hearts. They were touched to their hearts by what? God's Word. Friends, we do live in a porous universe where the supernatural moves within the material. The creator God is, speaking, is a speaking God who reaches our minds and hearts through his word, his written self-revelation that we know as the scriptures. To use Paul's expression in 2 Timothy chapter 3, the Bible is God-breathed. The world around us is in tumult, and people everywhere are looking for hope. It's one of the reasons for the drugs, the opiates, and people are indulging in everywhere. Do you know, on the New York subway, there are sometimes notices called poetry in motion. On one occasion, Matthew Arnold's poem Dover Beach was posted. It's a marvelous poem where Matthew Arnold identifies the hopelessness of many a human heart. The world which seems to lie before us like a land of dreams so various, so beautiful, so new, hath really neither joy nor love, nor light, nor certitude, nor peace, nor help for pain. And we are here as on a darkling plain, swept with confused alarms of struggle and flight, where ignorant armies clash by night. Where in the world today do you look for hope? In political, or economic, or social solutions, I want to say that there is no real answer apart from the message of Good Friday and Easter Day. In Jesus' approach to the two on the Emmaus Road, those two who were so bewildered, he began with a rebuke, asking them questions. But then he went on to educate them Breaking open the Scriptures, inspiring their minds, and touching their hearts. Did not our hearts burn within us as He opened the Scriptures to us? Well, there's something else here we need to note. What did those two on at Emmaus do? Open the champagne and talk on through the night? No, despite the hour and the danger, they walked the seven miles back to Jerusalem to tell the others. Churches deserve to have ministers who believe the scriptures to be the word of God and who are well equipped to explain them. Churches that have such ministers or pastors as you have here will grow because people will be hearing God's word and feel its impact, not just in their minds, but in their hearts. People who are awakened to the riches of God's love through a clear understanding of the meaning of Jesus' death and resurrection will have joy in their hearts because they have hope. So let me ask, do you look forward to tomorrow because you've got the hope of Jesus in your minds and hearts? Do you have hope? Can you truly say, as in fact, the two on the road said to everyone back in Jerusalem, Christ is risen, he's risen indeed, hallelujah.